hello. Anybody there? Jamie. Hey, there we go. There we are. I'm here. My apologies. I had the wrong link for some <laughs> no, reason. I kept going to my default. My default Google. Oh, I see. Page, you oh, know, no. rather than. You know, that's my that's my fault for making things Google. Uh, I, I think uh, I should join the crowd and go with uh, go with Zoom. That's what everyone's doing these days. Yeah. Well, I've you know, I've discovered the miracle of StreamYard. Ooh, yeah, yeah. I'll have to chat with you about that here in a little bit. But uh, I'm really excited to get to talk to you. And it's really great to meet you. Um, it's same here. I know this has been a long time coming, but do you mind if we get the ball rolling? Let's do it. All right. So thanks again for your time, for uh, this opportunity to get to know you a little bit. Do you mind if we start at the beginning and get to talk about your love of, of uh, your work? Oh, not at all. Uh, lead the way. I'm, I'm here. All right. All right. So tell me where you're from. Tell me uh, what got you into making art. Um, uh, my parents are from Puerto Rico. And uh, so I'm like first generation mainland. Um, they spoke English, but, you know, English was a second language for them. So for me, I ended up learning how to read English through my older brother's stack of comic books. Mm. And so I would sneak into his room, grab comics and read them as best I could. Sometimes I'd sit on my father's lap and he'd read them to me and we'd kind of work out the words and the pictures together. And that just pretty much crystallized like a... a a love for comics and for that medium, you know, and just for that nature of communication that's more than just, you know, the written word. And so very quickly I discovered a facility for like drawing and for, you know, playing with Play-Doh and clay. And, you know, I was fortunate in that my parents and then the teachers recognized that facility and kind of kept nudging it and giving me opportunities to, you know, display my little dinosaur dioramas for parent-teacher night, that sort of thing. <laughs> so uh, did that uh, eventually make its way to to wanting to do comic books themselves? Was there a point where you you realized that that's something that, that you wanted to be a part of? Or do you enjoy those as a spectator, as more of a, a reader of comic books? Oh, I was, I wanted, that was my goal from day one to immediately, like I, <clears throat> I would get in trouble at school often because rather than taking notes, <laughs> I would slide a blank sheet of paper underneath my, my textbook and just draw out little stick figure comics. But I would do them kind of almost in reverse because I would stop, start at the bottom left corner and then just keep the adventure going across the bottom and then pull the paper down under from the, you know, from the textbook a yeah, little yeah. bit more <laughs> until I filled up the whole sheet, you know, yeah. and then I had to hide it in my textbook and I'd start again. That's awesome. So all of my school textbooks were just filled rather than notes with this little stick figure theater of just crazy stick figures doing things. And then it just kept going from there, you know? So it felt pretty organic to you to have the the story be told visually or was there all like a, a narrative written component to this or was it just the visuals that drew you in it was 110 percent the visuals i mean even to this day you know i i mm -hmm. devote a lot of energy trying to level up my skills and so i'm constantly in meetings with other comic creators who extol the virtues of writing the script first and then breaking it down to panels and for me, it's it's such an alien thing. For me, it's like the visuals are already there. And, 
you know, I just have to maybe break down some of the pages and then, you know, the dialogue, just the dialogue and narration just come to fill in what the imagery does not. Yeah. So growing up at a time when you did and, and, uh, you know, uh, Puerto Rico's relationship with the U S is, is interesting and, and difficult sometimes. And I'm curious, you, you having this desire, this expression to be an artist, did you ever feel like your parents give you any, any difficulty with that? Or, or did you, were they always supportive uh, of this pursuit? They were supportive of my talent. They weren't, they were hesitant of my desire to direct it towards something as trivial as comics. You know, maybe it's because I left mm -hmm. them around in the living room yeah. every so often and that would contribute to the mess. And so that was part of it. Maybe because they didn't, they thought I could spend my money elsewhere, but they were like, they would have me, they would say, why don't you go into architecture? And my answer was too much math, you know? Mm -hmm. So, we, right, we, right. And the reason I yeah. ask, oh, sorry to interject. Uh, the reason I ask is because of the, I, I'm not sure how much of, of, of that cultural thing is, is an immigrant experience and how much of it is, is like them, you know, just like being like any parent, uh, wanting to say you should go into something more profitable or you should do something that is going to benefit the family, you know, or a lot of those things that might be cultural or might just be a parent looking out for their kid. <laughs> oh yeah. It's really <laughs> you know? an interesting thing to try and split where like they were definitely willing to, um, you know, they definitely wanted to foster my skills, you know, as it pertained to, you know, why don't you make the card that everyone's going to sign for, you know, for the new, for the church priest who's leaving to a new parish or something like that. You know, they were willing to, to have yeah, me focus yeah. on, you know, you on learning how to utilize my talents. But as I grew older, they were always nudging me towards the practicalities of what could I learn? You know, how could I apply it? So they, you know, so ultimately we split the difference to go with like uh, advertising art and design, as it was called at the time. And that happened just at the dawn of the invention of the Macintosh computer, right? So just as I was learning, so this is like 90s, late, late 80s. 80s. So graduate started college around 87, right? So I think the Macintosh came out in 88, maybe. Um, so the teachers still wanted us to do things the old fashioned way, you know, but myself and a bunch of the students, you know, were really eager to adopt new methods. So we ended up, we ended up, uh, thanks to our student activities, we were able to like finagle having the student government pay for a whole suite of technology wow. that we then used for the school newspaper and for the school yearbook. So we were, and then of course, for our own homework assignments as well. So it kind of instilled that uh, learn by doing process that I think was something that my parents kind of instilled in us being, you know, first generation in the US. You know, it was important that everything that was done, if they could do it themselves, they were going to do it themselves. And so I kind of carried that into digital arts. Yeah. Yeah. There's kind of a built in uh, work ethic to to having that, that kind of background. You're like, OK, we got to just get our hands dirty and, and get the work done there. But speaking of the 90s, uh, you mentioned in your bio that the 90s was a very interesting time in independent comics. And I'm curious to know more about that the comic boom and what what it was like being in that environment at the time and living through that 
Well, so, you know, crazily enough, you know, coming out of school, art school, and, you know, moving into a more advanced learning, going to the School of Visual Arts right around that time, you know, this was when comics were really determined to be, to prove themselves to be like for adults. It's not mm -hmm. just for kids anymore. And mm -hmm. so you had, you know, mainstream news covering such things as, you know, The Dark Knight Returns by Frank Miller or, or The Watchmen. So for a bunch of young comic artists, there was just a determination to break in somehow. You know, if we couldn't get into Marvel or DC, there were so many small independent publishers just popping up at the time to, to make a name for themselves in some way. And so I ended up, you know, connecting with a small indie publisher. Uh, they, were, they were called uh, Double Edge Publishing. And they kind of focused on very 50s-esque sci-fi, so almost like Pulp Fiction before Pulp Fiction really became, you know, really came back. But so it had had this very pulpy feel you know there were black and white comics and it was like you know time travel and dinosaur people and you know and then the occasional <laughs> yeah and the occasional like mystical martial artist type in the mix you know yeah and, uh, fun stuff you know but the environment was changing so quickly at the time right you had um the 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 boom of of image comics hitting you know impacting right and then you had the whole boom of the speculator market superman dying a uh, holographic covers it was just nuts so in that context there were you know there were publishers that were just showing up one issue they deliver one issue and then they disappear and that was happening just all wow. over the place you yeah. know and so at that time period you know lots of comics were still black and white new comics were showing up other familiar comics were disappearing at the same time marvel comics was kind of showing dominance because this is when you know the direct comic shop market was really at its most powerful and so in that whole mix it i just found that there were other interesting ways to to um to do art you know i started doing art um t-shirt art uh event art concert posters um And I started finding a lot of, you know, like people loved the comic book aesthetic, even though they had ostensibly like left comic book behinds. So there was this this option to um, there was this interest for for to hire me to do, say, um, a new room at a nightclub in New York City. And they're like, yeah, make it wow. make it comic ish. <laughs> so, you know, it was it was a very crazy and fluid time to try and find any means to to get my art out there but there was work is is you know sort of like the the main part of it exactly just yeah. it was the, the constant hustle so you yeah, know comics yeah. as as most people know it takes a long time you know it takes weeks to draw create the art and then you have to send it to the printers it takes a month or so for that to happen and then it comes back so in the time that i was finished one issue of a comic You know, I could also design a handful of flyers for nightclubs. I could do a bunch of T-shirt designs. And those things would give me, you know, cash on hand in the moment. And then those opportunities just kept growing until eventually, you know, an entrepreneur was like, why don't you partner with me to design a nightclub? And then we'll do something like that. And great opportunities to do artwork at a large scale, yeah. but not necessarily... um something that you could build a long-term career on. 
it was it was too fluid you know nightclubs would even more so than comics nightclubs would come and go owners would change around you know what was popular at one you know one month would not be the same as another so long story short one really cold winter in new york kind of got me looking at the idea of going west mm. and the op from as soon as i started making that decision the opportunities just opened up you know older brother had moved to california he's like come out spend the winter and just check things out you know no commitment as soon as i got there you know i was like let me just get a job so i have some play money and that job turned out you know it, they didn't say it in the ad but it turned out that they were the publishers of kung fu magazine you know at the time i was still i, I considered myself a young martial artist so i was so excited at that Mm. once that door opened up that I just jumped in with both feet. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was going to ask you about your love of Kung Fu interest in, in the martial arts. When does that start in your life? Was that something that you you explored when you were younger? Or as you you said, maybe you found it later in life? I did explore it when I was younger. I mean, you you could say that my older brothers helped me focus on some of those details, you know, for mm -hmm. for better or for for worse. They wanted me to survive the, the the schoolyard as well. So there was always an interest, and in, you know, the move the movies were playing, the 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 those Sunday afternoon kung fu theaters were there. My brothers were so interested in them that as a young kid, I would kind of follow along. <laughs> you know, the typical younger brother tagging along, sure. and then. <laughs> that was enough to have it as a as a like a secondary interest throughout high school and into college you know becoming the once again i mentioned student activities so like joining right. the martial arts club was a was a great way to kind of be active be you know be involved in the student activities and also to you know impress the girls right like <laughs> it, it it all was part of the college experience yeah, and it yeah. it was something that I enjoyed to do. It made a nice counterpoint to sitting hunched over a drawing table. Right, right. So tell me about your time at Kung Fu Magazine and what kind of learning experiences you had there or what was the environment like in, in that time period? It was it was amazing. So I had moved there. This was uh, mid-90s. Um, they were still like mostly black and white with some color pages a, a fairly small publication but they were connected to like a manufacturing company mm. who was um producing like your your classic uh taekwondo white belt right so that was where most of their money was coming from but they were determined to make a go and really push the magazine forward so at the time i was i was more fluent in martial arts than most of the people that were the decision makers you know they were they were a Taiwanese immigrant married to a North Korean immigrant. You know, they were building their company and this was an opportunity for them to build it, but they still were not too familiar. There was still, it was still a steep learning curve. So when I joined in, I had the, that same learn as I go mentality that made me really valuable to them in terms of quickly learning the printing technology and quickly trying to adopt new methods. And so they gave me a lot of room to experiment um, while we move things forward. And that included allowing me to create a comic strip in the back page of each issue. 
So that's where I would create this comic. And the comic was um, part entertainment, part edutainment, right? It was meant to help to take little, you know, stories and, and parables within martial arts culture and convey them in a, in a comics form. It turned out to be really popular, you know, and it lasted for about, about three years, three and a half years, every, every issue. Um, we had a pretty solid fan base that ended up included. They added more pages to include like a, a letter column, which kind of turned into a little bit of an advice column. So I would end up mm. taking these questions and asking them to the Kung Fu masters that, that I would be working with because the real day job was for me to be art director. I had to get those photos that would be on the cover of the magazine and in the interior spreads. So I was working with all of these amazing martial artists and trying to capture, you know, what it is about their, their mastery, what it is about their art that mm -hmm. is unique that we could put on a cover. But then as a side effect, I'd, I'd capture little bits of like the mythology behind that martial art and the philosophy. Yeah. And those things I would squirrel away into like the comic strips. Mm. This might be a, just sort of a, a generic digression here, but I'm curious of how the, the work that you did interacting with those folks made its way into your writing approach like is there are there some things that where you felt like maybe there were there was overlap in the lessons that you were learning in in martial arts perhaps or from these martial arts experts to the way you you create i guess i should say oh definitely definitely like the one thing and i've i've talked about this with other martial artists and with martial arts scholars right and there's an a the going idea is that the martial arts you know, is ancient, right? But mm -hmm. they are almost a holdover of a time period before the written word, right? A lot of these traditions, a lot of the concepts have always been meant to be transferred, you know, from person to person in a more, you know, like in an oral history kind of way. You know, there are historic texts and some of them are ancient. So it's not uncommon, you know, that martial arts manuals exist. But there's a, but that's only one layer of the lessons that are meant to convey. And so the one recurring theme has always within the martial arts has always been that there's another layer to go to go deeper with. So uh, a beginner martial artist may learn to throw a punch, and okay, so now they've learned how to throw a punch. But then as they advance, they may learn that you know they're not just striking, they're not just throwing the punch with their fist but there's also something going on with the elbow that's hidden, you know, amidst that fight. And if you look really closely at, at some of the really good Kung Fu movies, they'll kind of point out these things, right? Where it's not just the fist that you see, but there's something going on with the elbow or with the knee. And so it was that metaphor that just carries on through all of the teaching. And the beautiful thing is that this goes, this isn't just about, you know, fighting or martial arts, this concept, you know, permeates every aspect of that cosmology. And so then you think of something like uh, Feng Shui, which popularly is known as like arranging the furniture in your house, right? That's what most people think of when they hear that term. But then if you peel away a layer and then you think of it in terms of like, let's say martial artists, right? 
they want to arrange their house in such a way as to be able to protect what's most important, you know, the emperor or the treasure. And so everything that's arranged in the house, you know, is meant to also serve this other purpose, right? And then now they take that a step further, right? Because martial arts also isn't about protecting oneself in the moment. It's about cultivating longevity, right? What's the point of surviving, you know, being attacked by bandits if you're going to die from an illness, right? So the martial arts wants you to live long and be strong. So then they go back to feng shui. And then, you know, those concepts are also meant to remind you how to live healthy, you know, to have good airflow or to have hygienic living circumstances. And so that's just one example, but so much of that martial philosophy has that has that quality of multiple layers. And once once I saw that, I could not stop seeing that. And then that became like a major guiding principle for my art, which is to to put another layer behind it and try and add another layer behind that so that on the surface, someone can look at it and enjoy it. Oh, that's a cool picture of so-and-so, you know? That's a cool picture of, of the, the, the Prince of Tigers being, you know, given his crown, let's say. I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. quoting a scene from one of my comics, right? But, but then not only did I wanna do that scene, I wanna populate that scene with all of the mythical creatures and all of the animals that are known to live in, in Asia. So then that's another layer because now someone can look at that and start saying, oh, look, that's a pangolin. Oh, look, that's a that's a panda. Right. There's another yeah, layer. Yeah. But then I then I'll try and go another layer behind that and I'll compose that work of art to be parallel to, say, um, the coronation of Charlemagne, which is in the 13th chapel of one of the you know, one of the Renaissance uh, cathedrals in Italy. Right. So not related to martial arts at all, not related to Chinese culture, but it's another layer for people who have gone to art history class and have stayed awake. I had a problem <laughs> staying awake in art history class. <laughs> but so it's just those layers that I want to keep adding to my art so that yeah, the next time yeah. you come back and look at it, you might see something else. Right. It's another opportunity to to connect the dots and offer more um, I guess it's not embellishment. It's it's just a furthering, right, of of the content uh, for people who haven't experienced. Exactly, with. exactly. Just a, another hidden layer. It's just um, I wanna I wanna hide reward. It's like Easter eggs. That whole philosophy <laughs> yeah. of Easter eggs, which is so popular. Right. So this would be a good time to to talk about a tiger's tail, and now this is its own project. Uh, that is currently on uh, Kickstarter, correct? Yeah, so vol volume one and two are on Kickstarter currently. We have about 25 days. Mm -hmm. I launched the campaign to volume one as a way to kick off the whole project in February of 2022, mm -hmm. uh, just in time for a year of the tiger. Mm -hmm. And and it got a lot of, you know, it was well received, you know, it, it um. The artwork ended up being featured in a gallery show in 2022. It also received a small arts grant to help um, with the distribution of that that comic. So now with with the new year, right? It's a new Chinese New Year. The Lunar New Year of the Rabbit has come, and so I have a volume two, which is the sequel, right? It's larger, more pages. It's a lot more. 
you know, volume one, I wanted to just create this world for folks to explore. And mm -hmm. volume two, you know, like most good sequels, takes it all, <laughs> expands on it, and makes it all, puts it all in peril, makes it all, increases the stakes, yeah. let's say. So just to clarify, A Tiger's Tale began as the, the comic that you worked on for Kung Fu Magazine, correct? Yes, yeah. Okay. So when did you feel, or did you feel at the beginning that this could be something that would be bigger than, than just the comic strip in the back of the magazine? I kind of started seeing that and suspecting that when, you know, I would be getting, you know, fan mail, you know, letters from mm -hmm. people who are reading it. And some of these were really interesting. I mean, I, I would get letters sent from, from inmates at prisons oh, who wow. had an interest in martial arts because it was a violent scenario. But they were also interested in some of the more philosophical ideas that my characters were exploring. You know, not all conflict has to be resolved violently, that sort of thing. And so it was those little experiences that really started giving me the ideas. And then there was, like I said, my publishers were willing to let me experiment. So there was one issue where we were covering, covering the Mortal Kombat movies, which were coming out at the time. Mm, yeah. And so it was very much a you know, the issue was devoted to martial arts in the movies. And so they, they actually let me publish a multi-page story within those pages. It turned out to be about 10 or 12 pages with like this, the, the full color center spread as like the mm. pull out poster, yeah, you know, they wanted yeah. to make a big deal of it. And so that's when I decided, okay, rather than just doing these simple little, you know, the secret origin of monkey Kung Fu, you know, let me, try and tell a genuine story let me try and make these characters evolve in a in a uh -huh. real story sort of way right rather than rather than just being um you know mcgruff the crime dog right who they just show <laughs> up they offer their lesson and they disappear yeah and so that was kind of the foundation of what would eventually become the graphic novel mm. you know that's the story was popular it was a small framework and then when when the magazine was no longer able to continue printing it in its pages, right? This was now at the start of the internet. The internet was invented. Mm. Yeah. So we all had lofty ideas of converting a tiger's tail into an online cartoon, mm. not really knowing exactly what that would entail. Right. You know, and that's that's a big leap, right? Because um, for somebody who's always been in print, in in essence. How did you feel that you made that leap personally? Do you feel like like being in a digital world now takes away from the experience or is there something being lost here, especially when it comes to the medium that you work in? That's a tricky thing. You know, I still love the, I love the smell of a freshly printed comic. You know, there's still such a, an experiential quality to, to reading it in print that, I was res you know reticent to give that up but also you know the opportunity to explore with a new form of art in this case animation online you know I was willing to try it not really realizing how much time it would take and it would it would probably take about 10 years of the project being caught in that kind of developmental limbo where the technology was not quite there the investment was not fully committed. It just languished for a while. 
you know, but meanwhile, the, you know, the internet was evolving. Kung Fu magazine as a, as a cultural entity or as an IP was growing. It was entering more of the mainstream. So the demands of the day job were as such where I had to focus on the day job and then the writing and drawing of a tiger's tail as a comic or graphic novel kind of became relegated to nights and weekends so that that slowed down the process but it also gave me a, a opportunities to really distill what i wanted to say mm-hmm. with it what kind of art i wanted to do yeah isn't that something that happens uh, a lot in writing too especially for me in particular i'm i'm currently working full time this other thing but then it seems like I have all week to process. And then by the time I actually have maybe 30, 45 minutes, I know exactly what needs to happen. I think that's kind of what you're talking about, right? But just with a visual kind of medium. Mm-hmm. Oh, I lost you. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, no, it's, it's exciting because uh, I, I think that over time, you just find a way to manage your craft, even though there's restraints. Is that correct? It's true. It's true. And, you know, I admit that I, I took some detours. You know, I, I, I still, I've still had a love for, like, art that is um, experiential, I like to call it. So, like, interactive art installations mm. and, you know, designing of events. So, you know, there were definitely time periods over the course of the years where I would focus my energy on such things as, you know, this summer we're going to go to Burning Man or, you know, for New Year's Eve, we're going to host this interactive art installation, you know? So, so there were always other ways that I was trying to pursue artistic expression, knowing that sometimes, you know, drawing, creating comics is a long and lonely process. So, you know, I wanted to also socialize and, and have a bit of a social life. So, the chance to do that in these other venues, you know, we're always there. Right. So you also mentioned that you have uh, a bit of experience uh, working in, <clears throat> excuse me, children's book illustrations. Yes. Yes. Can in you, 20, yeah. In, in 2012, once again, thanks to the Kung Fu connection, right? Um, screenwriter John Fusco contacted the magazine mm-hmm. asking if we knew any artists now john fusco screenwriter is the screenwriter of movies like um crossroads uh young guns one and two um hidalgo like his two great loves are horses and martial arts and so for the martial artists um we'll recognize him for the netflix series marco polo which he traveled to to mongolia to executive produce but then he also wrote the screenplay to a movie called Forbidden Kingdom, which is the first and only movie where Jackie Chan actually fights Jet Li on screen. You know? Oh, right, right. So for, yeah. for the martial art geeks, it's a, it's a kind of a seminal moment, those two titans <laughs> in one movie. Yeah. But so his abiding love for martial arts put Kung Fu Magazine on the top of the list when he was on the lookout for a children's book illustrator. And so my publisher at the time just sees the email and looks over to to me and says, do you want to do a comic? Do you want to do a children's book? You know, and to which I had to say yes. You know, <laughs> I, I, was an, I was an admirer of John Fusco's work at movies. 
you know, how could I not at least take a look at his manuscript? And so it's, it's, it's another Kung Fu story. It's, it's about the origins of uh, praying mantis Kung Fu. And so it's a story of a young monk who is bullied and he's, he ends up leaving the temple and wandering the forest and he discovers a, a praying mantis and takes, sees the praying mantis fending off the attacks of a larger beetle. Mm. And that inspires him to observe the praying mantis and develop praying mantis Kung Fu and then come back to the temple victorious, having invented a new martial art. Oh, that sounds amazing. I'll have to, I'll have to reach uh, or seek out for that, uh, that publication for my kid. He's uh, just getting of age where that might be interesting for sure. But can you tell me a bit of the collaboration there, uh, going to a completely different medium, what kind of concessions had to be made or things that you weren't expecting that you discovered in that medium? As a designer and a comic book artist, I'm usually very accustomed to having complete control. Well, so I'm sorry. I think we, we lost you, but I'll just oh, keep oh, okay. going. I think I know what your question is. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, so as a designer and a, as a um, comic book artist, I have a lot of, I'm fairly obsessed with controlling every aspect of the page. You know, I've, you know, working for the magazine, I've been in charge of everything from the actual footnotes and making sure that number 42 appears on page number 42 for that page. And so working with Tuttle Publishing, the publisher for this book, they specialize in all sorts of martial arts publications. So they were interested in publishing this children's book because of its martial arts themes, but they were not that we'll say they were not as experienced in the specifics of publishing a children's book. At the same time, I was not as experienced with those things. So I had some ideas of how to create the art and how the art would interact with the text. You know, it's a very common thing to think about when you're creating a comic book, but within a picture book, there are other people involved. There's an actual other designer who's designing the book. There's editorial working on the copy. And so there was only so much I could do, you know, mm. added to that, it took them a little bit of time to determine the actual size of the art that they wanted. So I, I had generated a few pieces of artwork just to show them, this is the style I wanted to work in. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, the, the year and a half of time that they had initially given me to work on the art turned into about five or six months over the course of them deciding the exact size of the book, which for me, I was very fixated on because I had specific ideas of how each page should look. And in retrospect, I could have probably designed the artwork to not rely so much on those details. And then that would have allowed the book to flow a little more, the, the production process to flow a little more smoothly. You know, but because I hadn't, I had these very specific ideas of, of creating these like panoramic paintings that would move almost like a Disney background. It'd be these ornate panoramic watercolor paintings that you could, you know, that you could read from left to right and they would tell part of the story. But the artwork looks beautiful. I think the story is beautiful. But when the two combined, 
there's just you you'd have to read it to see like the text doesn't always match with the uh, art sometimes okay. they drop the text window because the art because the t there was too much text for that art so they needed mm. to create a square which covers up some of the art you know yeah. it was a an imperfect product but it still gained some recognition yeah which is what mattered and it opened so many doors like 10 years later like that book is still such a like a seminal part of where my artistic path led me. That's amazing. So you continue to do more uh, children's books and, and those kinds of illustrations after that quite a bit? Not as much. I mean, working on that project really reignited my fire to focus on A Tiger's Tale. So I ended up redoubling my efforts there. I did end up doing a couple of other illustrations for chapter books and a few other publications but they were my real passion from that moment forward was to really finally finish a tiger's tale yeah yeah no it's incredible so i want to um for, well first of all i want to thank you for this conversation it's been phenomenal i have just a couple more questions to be mindful of your time here uh i'm curious what you're consuming right now whether it's as you mentioned art exhibits or books or uh, other works of art that are lighting you up right now that are um really empowering you to get back to the to your uh creative uh office to get started well i've really been having a great time exploring kickstarter as an environment for mm. comics you know and like kind of cutting loose from the classic marvel and dc output you know mm. i'm still i still like my x-men you know so i'm still picking <laughs> up uh you know, the immortal X-Men, which still comes out recently. And, you know, I, I'm picking up the latest run of detective comics because uh, Ram V's Batman is so operatic right now. So, but, but those are, you know, not as, um, they don't prob, they don't figure as prominently in my reading as compared to a lot of the Kickstarter campaigns that are showing up and, a lot of the individual artists who are just having their own voice. You know, there was a recent Kickstarter of the Monkey King last year, which was great because it was the story of the Monkey King, classic Kung Fu tale, but it was framed within the subways of New York City's Chinatown. Oh, wow. Brilliant. Brilliant. Oh, great. So Jer you don't... Jerry... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, Jerry Marr was the creative the creator for that and it's just such a great little spin on a classic tale yeah so it seems like you you've definitely seen a change in approach for folks because they feel empowered to be truthful to their own perspective because they're not beholden to the corporate aspects of the industry right i mean as with with anything oh 100 percent. also if you consider like this little new shift in how comics are being published you know, could be counted as one of the few silver linings of the 2020 pandemic where, you know, we were all locked in. We all had a lot less to do. So a lot more people rediscovered their love of comics. And at the same time, a platform like Kickstarter, and there are others, right? Indiegogo, Zoop, et cetera, you know, made it much more effective for the individual artists to find their audience and you know and match their production to it so it's not like you have to invest thousands of dollars to print out 
thousands of comic books and then try and sell them at a convention, right? Now you could go to a place like Kickstarter, find out that you've got a passionate hundred members of your audience. And so you could, you can now find a digital publish printing place that will print you a hundred copies for them. And then maybe an extra hundred that you can keep to take to the convention, but yeah. you're not filling up your garage with thousands and thousands <laughs> of boxes either, you know? So right. it just, is a little more um, manageable on a smaller scale, which I think is a benefit to many. Right. So this is a very selfish question, but if somebody is in the process of starting to read comics or doesn't know where to begin, because as you said, there's, there's just countless and countless issues and publications and places to go. Where would one begin if, if they're looking to get into this, into this medium of comics? Well, I mean, they're still out there. So I would always try and find a local comic shop, you know, a, a, a reputable one, right? And usually they're, part of their mission is to really try and play matchmaker for the reader mm. and for the comic. But also the local libraries now have really recognized that comics are a thing and comics are uh, an epic gateway for reading. And so librarians have taken comics and graphic novels very seriously over the past five or so years. So those are the two first resources. And then, you know, that's, you can ask me, right? I, I've definitely <laughs> read so many that I kind of have a knack, if I do mm -hmm. say so myself, I have a knack <laughs> with being able to figure out what I would recommend to a person after having a conversation with them. Right, it's kind of a right. fun game to be like, oh, oh, so you like action movies? Have you checked out <laughs> The Invisibles? Oh, you like, you like crazy, you know, detailed history? Well, maybe you should read the you should maybe read Age of Bronze and see the comic book version of the, you know, of the War of Troy, or you could read Berlin and just find like an underground history of Germany between World War One and World War Two. Yeah, there's so many so many possibilities out there. <laughs> so many places to begin. It's uh, it's such a an endless uh, endless possibility there. So uh, lastly, I'm curious because this is the last time I'll get to ask this because this is like almost the last day of January. I'm interested to know what things you're working on this year to improve your craft, to better your work. If there are some things that you're looking to overcome this year for your craft. Well, as, I think, as a resolution, I should say. Yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> but the one thing, um, the one thing that I've really realized is how important uh, community is within the creative process. I mean, I think I've kind of always known it in the sense of a lot of the experiential art I've worked on has been collaborative. So I've always known that there's a community component to it. But within the context of comics, it's so important to find your peers and to try and work with them. So I've joined a few online organizations that I'm really glad to have found. Right. One is called Kids Comics Unite. And they are a group of, of artists, writers, librarians, agents who are just devoted to elevating the craft. Um, there's another group called Comics Connection, which want to have more practical information available for creatives in terms of protecting their intellectual property, in terms of 
knowing when to sign a contract and when not to sign a contract. So groups like that, I think, have been incredibly valuable to me because they've gotten me out of the whole concept of I just want to be an artist and I want someone else to take care of all the details. And they've really helped me realize that it's all part of the process that, you know, that actually packing and shipping my books to backers, you know, can be an artistic process. You know, I can make each one of those packages a little bit of a work of art. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean I have to cut the cardboard and make an <laughs> origami package, which is some of what I did for my first campaign, which regrettably took more time <laughs> than I anticipated. But it's just that the, the importance of, um, of knowing where I can put my energy so that Mm -hmm. I can, you know, meet my goals and, you know, I'm really good at starting projects and I'm finally getting okay at finishing them. So <laughs> with, with the campaign for volume two of a tiger's tale, you know, now entering its first week, I've got, you know, 25 more days to really focus on, you know, getting the word out there and inviting people into the dialogue that is the Kickstarter campaign. Cause it's, it's, it's been fun. Like, I don't just want to go out there and say, Hey, buy my book. You know, I want people to, um, to experience some of the ideas and some of the conversations that inform the tiger's tale. So I've been reaching out to as many of the Kung Fu masters that, that I still know and inviting them onto live streams so that we can talk comic and Kung Fu from a really informed perspective and then share those conversations to anyone who wants to listen, you know, regardless of whether or not they want to back the campaign, they could still check out the live stream and get a firsthand view of what we mean when we talk about having good Kung Fu and brewing a pot of tea or having good Kung Fu and how you, one plays a flute, you know? So it's like these other aspects, right? Everyone thinks of Kung Fu as the fight scene, but there's so much more to it. And so it's, it's been like the Kickstarter campaign will help finance the publication of volume two, the comic book, but the Kickstarter campaign will also, you know, be a chance for me and my martial arts friends to talk to anyone who wants to talk to us and really break down, you know, some of these lesser known concepts of Kung Fu and Asian philosophy and, and comics and movies too. I'm a, I'm a big fan of movies. And one of the things I didn't even mention is that Kung Fu magazine, like I'm the official Marvel cinematic universe movie reviewer for Kung Fu magazine. Oh, nice. right? <laughs> so I, so I, I get to go to these movies and really just focus on the fight scenes between mm. Captain America and black Panther or whatever. <laughs> and then I get to interview some of the martial artists who are involved in the stunt work or oh, lovely, you know, you know, the choreography. But then we get to, but then I get to also, you know, bring my, you know, love for comics and really go into the minutia of what went on behind the scenes or what, you know, what's the real origins of Black Panther or Ant-Man right. or, or Kang the Conqueror. I'm going to see Ant-Man next week. Oh, and yeah. I'm very excited about that. That's oh, coming out so soon. Wow. I thought it was well, a it's, few months. It's not actually oh, coming out the so special, soon, but yeah. I got invited to a preview <laughs> screening. Very Which nice. is, you know, the best way to watch them. You know, there's no better way to get a good opinion about a movie than reserved seating with only a select <laughs> other, you know, highbrow reviewers. That's right. That's right. Well, I think this has been a phenomenal time and this is a wonderful note to end on. But 
Patrick, I want to thank you so much for your time, but also for reminding us of the power of comic books. I think it is such a beautiful gateway for people to get engaged and to find their way in the world. And of course, you know, alongside your, your love for martial arts, I think it's a beautiful way to strengthen, strengthen ourselves and, and lead a beautiful, powerful life and community. I mean, what, what better way to say it than the way that you just encapsulated that? I mean, it's, it's incredible. So thanks for all that you gave me today. This has been such a gift and I hope that we get to, you know, talk a little bit more down the road, but I, I really can't thank you enough. Well, thank you, Jamie. I, I really appreciate this. And the invitation is 100% open for you to, to join us on our live streams, either in person or in the chat. And um, ask ask any questions you can come up with. My goal is to stump some of these kung fu masters, and they're so knowledgeable. I mean, not yeah. just of martial arts, but some of them know some crazy knowledge about That's movies right. and and comics as well. So yeah, we want people yeah. to come by and and jump in on that conversation and really like elevate uh, it for everyone. You know, yeah, like a good yeah. conversation is fun for everyone involved. So. That's right. Well, yeah, I'd love to include that in the episode description so that we get all of your stuff in there and folks know where to find you and uh, where those streams are at. So uh, I can't wait to check them out as well. It's going to be a good time. Excellent. Yeah, it'll be fun. <laughs> We've had a few that have been mind-blowing and there are more yeah. to come. So as you Wonderful. can tell, I'm, I'm just bubbling with enthusiasm for them. This no, isn't an <laughs> act. I'm really excited about them. No, that's the way to be. But thank you so much, Patrick. You've been amazing. And uh, I hope we get to chat a little bit later down the road, okay? I, I hope so, too. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. All right, man. Well, you have a wonderful Sunday, and, uh, and I'll be in touch on the internet. Excellent. Once again, I'm so glad that we had a chance to talk. So you take care. Let's, let's talk again soon. That's right. You too. Take care. Bye. Okay, bye. Bye.